Thank you, our Father, for this word of truth. Thank you for the gospel that is contained in this story. A gospel that saved a man who had both physical and spiritual need. And a gospel that is able to save us as well. And thank you for the king who is revealed in this story and for his power and authority over all of creation and over the whole spiritual realm as well. Giving him authority to command illness and to command sin. He is our Savior. He is the Lord. And He is our King. Might we come to Him with gladness this morning. And might You give us wisdom about Him and delight in Him through this Word. And to that end as well, we would ask that You would give me wisdom in explaining and discerning this Word. So that the things that are spoken of are spoken of rightly from this word. Would you guide us and direct us? Would you transform us by this wonderful message about a wonderful king? We pray in his name. Amen. I have a friend who right before he waxes eloquent about what he thinks I need to do with my life and decisions I need to make, will say, well, if I was king for the day, he means that jokingly, I think. Because he tells me that all the time. If I was king of the world, I would. What would you do if you were king? Poet Judith Vorst, writing in the voice of five-year-old Alexander, gives one opinion in the poem, If I were in charge of the world, says Alexander, If I were in charge of the world, I'd cancel oatmeal, Monday mornings, allergy shots, and also Sarah Steinberg, evidently a nemesis in kindergarten. If I were in charge of the world, there'd be brighter nightlights, healthier hamsters, and basketball baskets 48 inches lower. If I were in charge of the world, you wouldn't have lonely. You wouldn't have clean. You wouldn't have bedtimes. Or don't punch your sister. You wouldn't even have sisters. If I were in charge of the world, a chocolate sundae with whipped cream and nuts would be a vegetable. (laughs) Why am I surprised that you like that, Carol? All 007 movies would be G. And a person who sometimes forgot to brush and sometimes forgot to flush would still be allowed to be in charge of the world. Fortunately, Alexander and my friend and you and I are not in charge of the world. We are not good candidates for kinghood or sovereignty. But there is one who is magnificently positioned to be sovereign. Jesus Christ, the King. 
The book of Matthew, as we've been noting the last few weeks, presents Jesus Christ as the King of Israel. He is the promised Messiah to fulfill the covenantal promises to the nation of Israel. So the promises that began to Abram back in Genesis chapter 12 through 13, 15, and 17, and then were ratified to Moses and David and Jeremiah. This Messiah that has been promised to Israel has arrived. And the question for Israel is, would Israel have him as her king? She would not. And so the king was rejected, crucified, and resurrected, and returned to heaven until he awaits for a time when he will come again, and this time set up his eternal kinghood in Jerusalem to rule there from his throne. But Matthew is not just presenting Jesus as king of Israel. He demonstrates in this gospel that Jesus is the king of all men. He is the king of the earth and he is the king of the Gentiles and available as well to Gentiles as their king, as their savior, as their Lord. It's interesting that that this gospel that is sent primarily to the Jews also includes unique messages to affirm that Jesus Christ is also the king of the Gentiles. Consider even the story of Christ's coming at the first advent. Matthew, the letter to the Jews, is the only account to talk about the arrival of the Gentile magi to worship the king of Israel. Gen- or, excuse me, Matthew chapter 8. Matthew includes the story about the centurion, the Roman Gentile centurion, whose son was healed by Jesus. Matthew accounts, Matthew chapter 16, for the coming of the establishment of the church of Jesus Christ, a church that would include not only Jews, but Gentiles as well. Matthew 24 tells us about the preaching of the kingdom To all the nations. And Matthew chapter 28 talks about taking the great commission, the gospel to all the nations. So Matthew, the gospel writer to the Jews, the one who is preoccupied with the salvation of the Jews and the presentation of the king of the Jews to the Jews is also concerned with the presentation of the king to the nations. And brothers and sisters, that's good news for us. Because we're among the nations, most of us. Who is this king? What's he like? That's what we're considering these weeks as we head into Advent. And this morning what we want to see is the authority of King Jesus. His right to rule. His right to reign. And just how authoritative is King Jesus And what Matthew 8, 9, and 10 particularly demonstrate is that Jesus is authoritative over every realm in his creation. But this story identifies that not only is he authoritative in every physical realm, he is authoritative in every spiritual realm as well, addressing the greatest problem that every individual has, the problem of sin. Who is King Jesus? King Jesus' authority is extensive enough to atone for every sin. 
He is powerful enough to command the vanquishing of every sin and the destruction of the sin nature in everyone who would believe in Him. He is absolutely authoritative in the greatest area of need in your life. And and the greatest need in your life is not physical, it is not financial, it is not relational. Your greatest need is spiritual and your relationship to God and the sin that that intrudes on that barrier. And Christ is able to address that issue. In this story, we will see four aspects of Christ's authority, and in particular, His authority over sin. The first demonstration of Christ's authority is that the king's authority is for deeds of sin. The king's authority is over and for deeds of sin. In Matthew 8, 9, and 10, the gospel writer presents Jesus the king to us in three ways. He is king. He is sovereign over the physical realm. So starting in chapter 8, we see Jesus healing a leper in Chapter 8, verse 3, we see him healing the Gentile centurion servant in 8.13. We see him healing Peter's mother-in-law in 8.15. We see him healing a demon-possessed man in 8.28. And we see him healing a variety of illnesses in 9.18 and following. So Jesus in these vignettes, in these stories, is demonstrating that there is nothing in his creation that is beyond his authority, that is beyond his control. He's over all of it. He's king. He's sovereign. He is also king over Israel. Notice chapter 9, verse 1. Getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. Now Mark identifies the city particularly as Capernaum. When you read that in Matthew's gospel, you might think he came to his own city. Oh, Jesus' home city, that's Nazareth. Now, we know he was born in Bethlehem, but we understand that wasn't his home city. But he grew up in Nazareth. But Nazareth isn't a seaside city, and so you're wondering, how did he get in the boat and get over to Nazareth? Well, by the time he begins his ministry, he's shifted his home base from Nazareth to Capernaum. Matthew notes this in 4.13. Leaving Nazareth, he came and he settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. So when Jesus comes to Capernaum, he's coming, in a sense, home. What's significant about him coming to Capernaum is that in in chapter 4, starting in verse 14... Matthew notes that this fulfills a prophecy that came through Isaiah. Verse 15. This is what Isaiah wrote. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light and those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death upon them a light dawned. When he comes to Israel, or excuse me, when he comes to Capernaum, he is coming in fulfillment that that the Messiah would be residenced in Capernaum, in that region, that the Messiah of Israel would be established there when Jesus goes there as 
going to his home. He is fulfilling the prophecy that says the Messiah comes from that region. Jesus is making a subtle declaration. I am the Messiah, the King of Israel. He comes to his own own home city. And he comes to that city as the king of that city and the king of Israel. He comes in these three chapters as king, as sovereign in three ways. He comes as the sovereign over the physical realm. He comes as the sovereign and the king of the nation of Israel. And now we come to the point of the story, and that is he comes as king and sovereign over sin. That's the fundamental point of this story. We know from the parallel accounts in Mark and Luke that Jesus was in a home. Perhaps he was in Peter's home. The homes back then were small and um, it quickly filled up with people so that the people who were bringing the paralytic man to Jesus couldn't get into the house. So they took the stairs to the roof. They removed the tiles off the roof and they lowered the man down in front of Jesus. And side note, don't you want to have been there to see that? And just how desperate were these guys to get the man to Jesus? It's interesting that Matthew omits all that. We would say that's that's like part of the cool part of the story. Matthew omits those details because he wants us to see the essence of the story. And one of the things he wants us to see is the urgency of the men who brought the paralytic to Jesus And their faith that Jesus could help the man. At the beginning of verse 2, my translation, the New American Standard, simply says, and they brought to him a paralytic. That word and is actually translated in many places, and behold. One translation renders it something like, just then. And I, I, I think that's helpful. Uh, that's a good, a good rendering of it because it, it's, it gives this sense of urgency. So the story is moving along along, and Jesus is at Capernaum and these people have gathered around him. And just then, there are these guys that just show up. And it says they brought him a paralytic. That word brought isn't just that, that they brought him, but the sense is they were bringing. In other words, there's this sense of urgency. You, you, can, you can get this sense that the guy's on his bed. The text doesn't tell us this, but... But in this verb is this idea that the guy's on his bed and he's probably saying, hey, guys, can't you hurry? It's like, hey, if you hadn't been eating so many Doritos, we might have been able to run a little faster. And, you know, this this isn't the easiest way to get you there. And there, there's a sense of I want to get there. And there's a sense with the four that are carrying him that they want to get him there. And that verb brought. They were bringing, captures a sense of urgency. They're running and they've got to stop, catch their breath. They pick him up and they carry him again and catch their breath. And they they run up to the top of the roof to let him down. And they're digging furiously to get him down. They, They want to bring him. It's interesting. In none of the accounts, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, none of them do any of the men speak. The four don't speak. The paralytic doesn't speak. That's really kind of remarkable, isn't it? You would think that somebody would say something. Undoubtedly, they did. But none of the gospel writers recount what they said. Again, I think that's 
to focus our attention where it needs to be. And that is not on the words of the men, but on the words of the Savior. The gospel writers want us to see what is Jesus seeing and what is Jesus saying. So notice what he says. Seeing their faith, Matthew records. And side note, that sense of urgency. They're running just then. They show up bringing, running, carrying, digging, lowering. That urgency, Jesus interprets as an act of faith. They believe that Jesus can do something for the friend. And he believes that Jesus can do something. And Jesus said to the paralytic, take courage, son. That word son is actually the word child. It's a term of affection, term of endearment. And you know what it's like if you have children, if you have grandchildren, And um, they're hurt, they're struggling, they have some form of weakness, and you put your arm around them, you say, hang on, daughter, hang on, son. You utter their name. You say, it's okay, we're going to make it. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Be bold. Be resolute. I know you're in a situation and a time that seems to be dangerous, and certainly you're in a trial. Be bold. Don't quit. Don't give up. And then he says something absolutely remarkable and seems to be disconnected from the man's need. And he says, your sins are forgiven. Jesus, in fact, is emphatic in the way he says this because Greek is an inflected language. You can... You can take the words and put them in any order and you know what the sentence means because of the way the words are formed. And so what is really significant in the Greek language for emphasis is seeing how the how the order is put together. And Jesus puts the word forgiven first in this clause. And so he says, forgiven are your sins. Be bold. Forgiven. Are your sins. And that word forgiveness has the idea of a removal or a remission. They've been sent away. God no longer counts them against that man. It's akin to Psalm 103 verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. That's remission. That's removal. That's forgiveness. And notice that when Jesus says this, he is clearly claiming to be the one who can remove the debt of sin. He's going to make that claim even more clear in verse 6. But it is very clearly implied here. He is not saying, one day you will be forgiven, like somebody will do something in the future. He is not saying you have been forgiven. Somebody did something in the past so that your sins are forgiven. He says right now, your sins are gone. On what basis? On the basis of Christ's word and Christ's promise that's in his mind and will be soon in the minds of others 
as he goes to the cross. What is it that's forgiven? It is his sins. It's that word that we commonly know, hamartia. It's it's the, the sins that miss the mark, that go astray. The things that, that God has set up as the standard and we have deviated from the standard. But not just have we deviated, but we have deviated rebelliously from that standard. We hate God's standard. We don't want anything to do with God's standard. We run away from His standard. And it is that sin of rebellion that Christ says, It is now, presently, by me being forgiven. All his actions, all his deeds of sin are removed. On what basis did Jesus forgive him? Jesus did not forgive him because he was being nice to a suffering man. It was not because he saw his hurt and saw the difficulty with which he was suffering and said, you know, somebody's got to have some pity on this guy. I'll take pity. It was on the basis of his faith. Notice the beginning of the verse, or beginning of the clause, middle of the verse. Matthew comments, seeing their faith, Jesus said. Now, as you read that quickly, you might say, seeing their faith, well, the, who's, who's there? Who's the pronoun referring to? Well, it's the guys that were bringing him. But you have to include the man in that as well. You have to include it for a couple of reasons, because You can imagine a scenario where the day before they had said to this guy, Hey, Joe, um, Jesus is back in town. Maybe Jesus will heal you. We think Jesus will heal you. And if he didn't believe, he would have said, Nah, there's no way. He can't do anything. I've been this way all my life. No, we'll take you. We'll carry you. We'll make sure you get there. We'll make sure you see Jesus. I ain't going. If he doesn't believe, he's not going. You can also imagine it wasn't just the man who believed, though, because even if he had believed, he didn't have the ability to get him there, get himself there. So he had to appeal to these four men, hey, would you take me? And if they didn't think Jesus could do anything about it, they're not carrying him either. And so all five of these men have faith in Christ that he is sovereign king and able to solve the problem of this man. And so Jesus heals the man, forgives the man, excuse me, on the basis of his faith in Christ. Some have suggested that Jesus told him to be courageous and Jesus then forgave him because there was something about his paralysis that was connected directly to a sin. So he had done something that was sinful that caused his paralysis or perhaps his paralysis was divine judgment for a sinful lifestyle or a particularly heinous sin. Honestly, I think that's reading a little bit much into the text. We just don't know if that's the case or not. But what we do know is that regardless of this man's sinful past and whether his paralysis was connected to his sin or not, we know that his greatest problem was not his paralysis. His greatest problem was his sin. And we know that because that's the greatest problem of every individual. And where we will, where will we stand before God? And what will we say to God? And how will we be rightly related to Him 
And the message of Matthew is the message that the king has come. By definition, a king is authoritative. And Christ as king is supremely authoritative. And the astounding news to both Jew and Gentile is that Christ is authoritative over sin. He has the right to say, it is gone. And brother and sister, it is gone. It's taken away. That tells us that Adam's sin in Genesis 3 is not finally determinative for us. So we are born into Adamic sin. We are born as sinners. But that's not the final determination on our life. And all of us sin. Some of us have sinned this morning. Some of us have sinned with family members this morning. All of us sin. I think it's safe to say all of us sin every day. And brother and sister, I want you to hear this. That sin that you commit on a daily basis is not determinative of where you end your life. What is determinative is what Christ says about your sin. And there is every capacity for him to say to this man's sin and to our sin, it is forgiven. It's wiped away. It's taken away. It's removed. It's vanquished. The good news is that, is that Christ is king and he has present tense today authority to deal with the root issue of man's sin. He doesn't overlook sin. He doesn't ignore sin. He doesn't excuse sin, but he will forgive sin. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, if you're not a follower of him, if you're not identified with him, if you don't love Jesus Christ as your savior, then I, I compel you, I urge you, I command you, you must come to him for salvation. He is your only hope. Your greatest detriment is your sin and your greatest hope is that Christ has dealt with that sin for you. You come to him. If you don't believe in Him, your problem is you're a sinner who can do nothing to save yourself. You have no ability to stand before God in the judgment. That's the consistent message of the Scriptures. And we're going to see it again in this story, in fact. But you can stand before God in the judgment if Christ takes your sin away. So if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, I urge you to run to Christ just like these men did, and in faith believe in Him. And brother and sister, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if He has saved you, oh, give thanks. What better week than this week than to give thanks for the amazing work in which He has said, your sins are forgiven. Wiped away, abolished, cleansed, removed, remitted. The king's authority is for every deed of sin. There's another reality we want to see about the king's authority in this story, and it is that the king's authority is for hearts of sin. He not only deals with the actual sin itself, he has capacity to deal with the heart from which every sin is generated. Watch this, verses 3 to 6. 
there is an accusation in this account against the king's authority. We find it in verse 3. Some of the scribes said to themselves. So the scribes were, were not just people who were copyists of the law. They certainly did that. They copied the law. But, but they were far more than that. They were experts in the Mosaic law. They were the religious lawyers of the day. If anyone knew the law and the implications of the Old Testament law, it was these guys. Many of these guys, in fact, were also Pharisees. And a group of these guys were evidently following Jesus. Jesus always gathered a crowd around him, and there are always those who were skeptics around him that were trying to, to denigrate him and to remove his um, credibility to the, to, the, to the masses. And so there were scribes at this event. They were watching. They were huddled up, evidently, in a corner, circled together, and they were saying things to themselves. And I, when I read this earlier, I, I kind of whispered it, because I think that's what's going on. This fellow blasphemes. Can you imagine? They're talking quietly about what's rolling around in their heads. Notice the accusation. This fellow, they hate Jesus so much. They can't even say his name. You ever hated somebody that much? You ever had that much animosity that just couldn't even spit out that person's name? And that's what's going on here, evidently. And they make the accusation that Jesus was a blasphemer. To blaspheme and to blaspheme God meant that God's honor and reputation was maligned or impugned. It was to, to remove God's glory or majesty. or it was, it was to denigrate God's glory and majesty. How did Jesus blaspheme God? In their estimation, he blasphemed God because he claimed to do something that only God can do. And they didn't miss the connection that if Jesus can say to this man and actually forgive. Then he's not just a man. He's God. He is the Messiah. And we have to follow him. Now, all of Israel wanted the Messiah. They'd been looking for the Messiah. They'd been anticipating the Messiah. The Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, they all wanted the Messiah. They just didn't want this Messiah. And so they accused him of being a blasphemer. They didn't get the last word. Notice the king's evaluation of the accusation. Verse 4, Jesus Knowing their thoughts. Now, verse 3 tells us that they were talking. But they were talking in hushed tones. So that they so that they wouldn't be overheard by others. They were speaking quietly, but Jesus didn't need to hear audibly. Matthew notes, he knew what was in their minds, in their thoughts, in their hearts. John, in another account, tells us something similar. In John chapter 2, he tells us about Jesus, almost the identical thing. Verse 24, Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. He knew 
man's sin nature and he knew the specific nature of those men to whom he was talking. He knew what was in them. Men's sin problems are always internal problems. It's not just what we do. It's what we think. It's what we desire. It's what we long for. And Jesus is the one who is rightly evaluating and understanding exactly what is in a man. He has the right not only to judge what we do. He has the right to judge what we desire and what is internal to us. John chapter 5 It tells us, truly, I say to you, verse 25, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son to have life in himself, verse 27, and he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. He has authority to judge, to evaluate, to determine what is right, what is wrong, not only what we do, but what we think. And it is exactly that that is going on in this verse. And Jesus draws the point at the end of verse 4. He knows what's internal to them. He understands their hearts. He understands their specific desires and motivations. And then he evaluates that, he judges it, and he says, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Why are you thinking evil? They're condemned before him. What is significant here is that these men are scribes. They're the lawyers. They're the ones who are used to making evaluations about other people and their compliance to the law. Nobody evaluates the scribes until Jesus shows up. And he says, what you have said and what you have, de- what you have desired is evil. So Jesus makes a pronouncement, a judgment, and a final declaration about these lawyers who are used to making declarations about others. They're condemned by the law. They're condemned by the author of the law. Jesus reveals his right to judge sin by his next question. Watch this, verse 5. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say... Get up and walk. Now, everybody, I shouldn't say everybody. Many people, most people read that and say, well, it's easier to say get up and walk. That's not what Jesus says. He says, which is easier to say? It's easier to say your sins are forgiven. On what basis is that easier? Because who can tell? Anybody can say your sins are forgiven. But if you have some kind of physical illness, if you're blind or you're deaf or you can't walk, and I were to say to you, be healed, now there's an immediate test. Did he tell the truth? Did he do what he said? We all know immediately. And so Jesus asked the question, which is easier to say? Well, it's easier to say you're forgiven. Okay, 
Well, let me do the thing that is harder to say in order to prove that it that I can also do the thing that's harder to do. Because it's easier to say you are forgiven. It's harder to do you are forgiven. And Jesus can do both. And so we have in verse six, the king's demonstration of his authority. But. So that you may know. That the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Notice the purpose clause at the end of, at the beginning of this verse. So that the reason he heals is to demonstrate his authority over sin. This story is not about healing the man's paralysis. The story is about Christ's ability to heal his sin. It's a demonstration That Christ is sovereign as king over sin. And Jesus even points more to that when he says that you may know that the son of man has authority. Son of man is a messianic term. It's used, I think, a hundred and seven times in the Old Testament. Most of them, it refers to. Just a man. In fact, it's used the vast majority of those times in Ezekiel to refer to Ezekiel himself. Ninety-three times, I think, in Ezekiel. One time, this phrase, title, is used about not a man. And it's in Daniel chapter 7. And this would have been well known to the scribes that were there and the Pharisees. And other religious leaders as well. Daniel 7.13. Daniel writes. I kept looking in the night visions. And behold with the clouds of heaven. One like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days. So we know instantly that this is not just an ordinary prophet. But he is a unique prophet because he can go into the presence of God. And then Daniel continues, verse 13, and he was presented before him, verse 14, and to him was given dominion, that's a kingdom, glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. This is not just any king. This is not just any prophet. This is the prophet, the king. And Jesus says, I want you to know that I am coming as the son of man and I have authority not only over kingdoms, but I have authority over sin. This term, son of man, is a favorite term of Jesus. It's used 84 of its 88 times in the New Testament in the Gospels. And Matthew uses it 31 times. It is by far Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. I am the messianic son of man. And then he emphasizes not only is he the Messiah, not only is he the king that has come to set up his kingdom, But he says, I have authority on earth to forgive sins. He has prerogative authority to control something. And in this instance, 
He controls who is and who is not forgiven. The Son of Man has authority in heaven. And the Son of Man has authority on the earth to rule the earth in an absolute and limitless way and particularly as it relates to sin. The story affirms the right of King Jesus to evaluate both externally and internally all of our motives, our sins of commission and our sins of desire. And it is worth noting that grace for forgiveness is available. But if one does not come to him for that grace and for that forgiveness, there's also a warning of judgment. He is the king And he has the right to determine who's forgiven and who is not. And if you don't come to him for forgiveness, then he will evaluate your heart. And he will pronounce it is evil. And he will condemn. He is the king. And he is authoritative. There's a third component to his authority And it is that he is authoritative for compassion. The whole point of the story is, I want you to know that I have capacity to forgive sin. But even while he forgives sin, he says to the paralytic, end of verse 6, get up, pick up your pallet and go home. Interestingly, that little phrase, get up, indicates that he's already been healed. He just doesn't realize it yet. Christ has already removed the paralysis and he says, hey, I know something you don't know. Stand up. And not only stand up, he's not only he's not only healed of the paralysis, but he has he has strength in his legs. He has capacity to move. I don't know. This is this is absolutely my imagination, but I don't think he strolled home. Do you? His legs were no longer atrophied. They were full strength. And buddy, I bet you, he went sprinting home. He came, carried on a pallet, and he left carrying a pallet. He came carried by four friends, and he went home alone. Love you guys, I gotta go home. And he ran home. Jesus gives a command, get up, pick up your pallet and go home. But he's also giving a provision, isn't he? It's not just a command, do something, do what I tell you. It's a gracious command that provides for the man. And it tells us as well, that while he is compassionate towards the man's spiritual plight, he is also compassionate towards his physical plight. And so he ministered to the man Not just to prove a point to the scribes, but as a ministry to the man and his physical ill. These chapters are just full of these stories. That's the heart of our Savior. He cares. He cares about our greatest need, our sin. And he cares about all those other needs as well. He's empathetic towards them. He's compassionate. He feels it in his gut. That's what the word compassion means. He's moved towards you he is compassionate for the man and because he's king he can do something about it 
I want you to notice one last thing about this story. Verse 8. The crowd saw this. And they were awestruck. The question in the Gospels. The question of every story about Jesus is. What will you do about Jesus? How will you respond to Jesus? What will you now say about Jesus? Because of how he has been exposed to you. How will you respond to him? Notice that. That Jesus, that Matthew now mentions the crowds. When the crowds saw this, in this story, the crowds have been absolutely in the background. The story has all been about Jesus. Jesus is the only one that has spoken. It's been about the friends that have carried the paralytic. It's been about the paralytic. It's been, as a side note, about the scribes and Jesus' evaluation of them. But now it's as if as if the cameraman Matthew has pulled the lens back so we see the crowd. The crowd in the house. The crowd that evidently had spilled out, undoubtedly spilled out into the street. And, G- and Matthew's wanting us to see, what do the crowd say about Jesus? In this profound miracle, what do they say? And they were awestruck. The word awe is actually the word fear. They trembled at the overwhelming power of Christ's words and Christ's actions. And they glorified God. They, they gave glory to God. They said, God's majestic. God is wonderful to have provided this miracle of healing. I wonder... If they were awestruck by forgiveness, we don't know. But I think there's a hint as to what they thought about the forgiveness and where their attention was. Notice this, the end of the verse. They were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to men, plural. Was Jesus just one of many men? Was Jesus just one of many men? No. Who was he? Verse 6. So that you may know the Son of Man. Singular. There's one Messiah. There's one king who is authoritative over all. There is one who can forgive. And the evaluation of the crowds is, isn't this cool that some guy could do this? He's just a man. I think there is an inference from Matthew here. I can't, I can't say it unequivocally, but I think there's an inference that the crowd was absolutely taken with the healing of the man's paralysis and absolutely overlooked the healing of a spiritual problem of sin. They just didn't care about that. That was unimportant to them. And brothers and sisters, we must not miss the point that what the crowd should have been doing is glorifying God that he could forgive sin. And the forgiveness of sin is intended to drive us and compel us to worship 
the Son of Man, the King of Kings. He's not just a great man. He is the authoritative King of all men. And the question for us today is, how are you worshiping Him? And how do you see Jesus? Is He just a great teacher? Or do you worship Him as the only and authoritative King of all men? The one who sees and knows all that we do and all that we want. And the one who is authoritative to forgive sin or to condemn sinners. How we answer that question not only determines where we will spend eternity, eternity, but will also determine if we will know and experience his grace and his friendship and his fellowship in our lives now. Oh, don't make the mistake of the crowds and say he's just a guy. A powerful guy. An amazing guy. But just a guy. He is the son of man who has authority to forgive sin. Our father, we thank you for the revelation of this amazing savior, Jesus. For his kingship, his lordship, his majesty. And thank you that in his kingship, he rules all men, rules all things. And has authority over all things. And particularly has authority. To evaluate. To judge sin. And to forgive sin. Thank you Father that he doesn't just forgive sin. By saying. Oh it's okay. But thank you Father that he forgives sin by. Having gone to the cross. As the perfect man who fulfilled everything that you commanded. And died an unjust death. So that we who are unjust. Might have his righteousness accounted to us. Thank you father. That he forgives sin. On the basis of the cross. And the basis of his resurrection. And thank you that. Because of that forgiveness that we might have fellowship with him. Father, you are an amazing God. To provide such an amazing savior and king for Israel and for us. We thank you and we worship you in Christ's name. Amen.